Hello and welcome to the OD&D podcast. I'm Joe Smart and today I'm delighted to be joined by Stuart Smart, Stu, who's funnily enough not a relation, just both have an awesome second name. And the Stu best. is here as uh, he's a HEMA coach and not just a HEMA coach, he's also a HEMA business owner and all-round good guy. And we're going to talk today a bit more about my hobby of HEMA, which um, Stu's been my coach since day one, and hear a bit more how Stu's built um, the whole club up from the ground, um, how it's gone from a few people in a church hall um, into something which is now across two clubs, um, two different counties, I think, um, recognised um, nationally and internationally. So, uh, so yeah, so welcome, Stu, to the podcast. Perfect. Thank you for having me. It's nice to uh, nice to get a go finally. Fantastic. So, um, so yeah. So, just for people who might not know who you are, and there might be a few on the on the on listening in. Um, do you want to just give us a bit of a background of sort of, you know, your, your story today, sort of how you've ended up where you are? Yeah, cheers. Uh, so as Joe said, I'm Stuart Smart, no relation. We just do have an incredibly cool <laughs> last name. Uh, so I start off my life as a lifeguard, essentially. I've always been in physical jobs or non-admin style jobs. Started off as a lifeguard when I was figuring out what I wanted to do. Realized that uh, watching people have a good time was pretty boring. So then from there, I strayed into the fitness industry. Uh, and that was the kind of the first real pivotal point for me, as I realized I actually quite enjoyed educating people. Uh, whatever the subject was, I just enjoyed imparting knowledge. And I found that I had a little bit of a knack for getting knowledge across so I started in the gym teaching people how to work out. I had absolutely no interest in fitness. I've never attended the gym a single day in my life, even though I'm a qualified and certified personal trainer. Uh, so started off in the gym, helping people work out. And then from there, I kind of realized that the riddle is almost more interesting than the outcome. So then I specialized in injury and stroke rehabilitation. And then from that point, I spent a fair few years rehabbing stroke sufferers and stroke victims, helping people uh, more than one occasion walk again, which was incredibly satisfying. And I realized at that point that actually imparting knowledge was something that I really enjoyed more than just enjoying it in the gym previously. It was something that I knew that I could do and I could do well. And the stroke rehab stuff was a real turning point because it was the first time the subject matter really mattered to me. Previously, when I had been a fitness instructor, I had no interest. It was a paycheck, basically. Mm. Uh, so the stroke rehab stuff was much more important. It was much more valuable because you were making an actionable change to people's lives. And that was the first real moment where my previous experience of, yeah, okay, I can teach met that desire to teach and that desire to actually do it well so that was a real turning point in my life and then from that point on I simultaneously around about that point I took up fencing I may even took up fencing when I was an instructor prior to my uh, stroke rehab uh, and then from that point on in natural progression turned from competitive fencer to fencing instructor and building it from there and things tend to snowball i'm of a personality type where i tend to turn my hobbies into a job so <laughs> there's this kind of singularity that uh hobby enjoyment do it teach it and that's how i kind of ended up in fencing and then fencing i was a competitive fighter in epe for a long time county level and then started to break into national level national not international and then realized that actually the tuition was far more interesting and I really enjoyed the tuition. It was every itch was getting scratched that I'd previously done with all of my other jobs. But with fencing, if uh, fitness instruction was checkers, then fencing is like 4D chess on top of a nuclear submarine. <laughs> it's incredibly in-depth and nuanced it's like an incredibly violent version of boxing um more so because you've got a sword winging around at you so it's really interesting i found just the the, the change of it and the dynamicism of fencing just incredibly engaging so i found it very very good and then from that point uh, i essentially tried reenactment once realized it wasn't for me 
because it was non-competitive. And then from there, found out how I could do reenactment, but competitive, and then found out about HEMA. And the rest is history. That's how I've ended up sitting here today. Fantastic. Thank you for that. So just for people who may not have come across HEMA, it's like a new acronym that they might not have heard about. Can you just give us a bit of a, I know what is HEMA is a massive discussion that resonates around the community (laughs) on an ongoing basis. But what does HEMA mean for you? What does it stand for? How do you kind of approach it? Okay. So like you allude to, there's within the HEMA community, there's a little bit of divergency on what it means to the individual. It's very subjective, uh, almost on all platforms, really. Uh, a lot of people get different things from HEMA, and HEMA means different things to different people. But the thing that's uncontentious is what the acronym actually means, which is Historical European Martial Arts. It's essentially any european medieval sword fighting in a competitive sport environment so if you think if fencing and reenactment had a mutant baby that's basically what hema is 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 competitive reenactment we're using historical weaponry historically accurate weaponry we're using historical techniques nine times out of ten and with all that history we're using that to try and competitively win in a scoring environment with points and referees. So the best way to describe it is it's like a competitive form of reenactment, really. Wow. So um, <laughs> I never thought of it as competitive reenactment before. I always think reenactment is getting all the clothes and everything. But I, yeah. I guess the uh, yeah the, the sports side of it, absolutely. Um, so with with HEMA, I mean, um, there's lots of different sort of weapons and systems that we use and um for people who might be listening to this and we're wondering what that means i think there's do you want to just give a bit of an overview of some of the manuscripts you might use and some of the time periods and just a description of some of the weapons we might use yeah absolutely so at time of recording there's we're mid competition season actually we're two competitions down one to go there are four commonly competed weapons they are longsword which the wonderful joe here fights And then we also have Sabre, Rapier and Dagger, which is my personal favorite weapon. And then we also have Side Sword and Buckler, commonly referred to as Sword and Buckler. They're the four main weapons. But then you also have variations on a theme. There's Arming Sword, which is what people would recognize as your classic single-handed knight sword in a cruciform fashion Mm -hmm. that would come under Sword and Buckler. You also have Single Rapier, so just kind of one musketeer-esque weapon, but you also have it with a dagger as well. You have things like Dusak, which is a smaller, slightly choppier version of a saber. I know a few people that would take umbrance with that, but um, keeping it as broad and as understandable as possible. Uh, it's an edged weapon. This is very choppy. Uh, you also have pole arms, spears, pikes, all this sort of stuff. Basically, if at some point in medieval Europe somebody got killed by it, we generally tend to train it or teach it to a degree. But there are four main competitive categories, uh, which is the fourth I alluded to previously. Yeah, that's, I, I was looking back at the uh, films and things and movies around when I was growing up and I think everyone who's kind of my kind of age grew up within t- Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and was fascinated <laughs> yeah. by sort of Leonardo swords. But then I look at the evolution and there's like, you know, Lord of the Rings and all those kinds of movies and long swords are sort of everywhere. And then I think of Sabre and I think of sort of Sharp and those kinds of Hornblower and all those kinds <laughs> of things. And then, <laughs> yeah. and then you start to look at Musketeers, which are to the Rapier and Dagger. It feels like swords are just so embedded in our culture they are massively Western culture. You just got to look at the sign above. Is it um, courts where you have you know the the person with the yes, Lady one. Justice, That's yeah, it, with a sword in the other hand, and you look at start looking around. If you start looking around, looking for swords, you'll see them literally everywhere. Yeah, and absolutely. It's just so um, hardwired into our. It feels like it's so hardwired into culture that swords equal freedom or um, a sense of responsibility or some kind of power. It's I don't know quite what your thoughts are on that one i'm going slightly off topic on this one no let's go for it 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 feels that it's it when you sort of say hema and swords it kind of resonates with people sometimes on not on a well that's a good idea but almost on a kind of like yes i finally found the thing that i've (laughs) seen everywhere and i've never quite been able to yeah absolutely um swords are pervasive it doesn't matter what your opinions are on swords i know some people who are quite anti-weapon um and people that i respect and people that are friends they're just like nah it's not for me but even people like that 
they have to appreciate that swords are so ingrained in society, even if you don't realize. I mean, look at Wilkinson sword, for yeah. example, two swords of a logo. There's all sorts of stuff all over the place. When you stop to notice, you will just notice swords all over the place, especially if you're in Sheffield, somewhere like that that's famous for mm. a steel. Um, there's a whole industry based around it, and there still is a thriving industry, uh, both antique and modern as well. But I think, I don't know, to potentially get a little ethereal with it, I think swords mean something to everyone despite your walk of life, whether you were in history or not really. If we go back uh, maybe 100 years or so, maybe more than 100 years, 150 years or so, if you're of a richer persuasion, if you're a nobleman or middle class and up, a sword is a status symbol. So it's something that you can own, that you can have about your person. Maybe you are wealthy enough or from a good enough family to be part of the household cavalry or something like that. A sword would be uh, a status symbol to show you what you have. So it almost becomes like a platform for you to essentially bling out and have the nicest possible way and be like, yeah, my family can afford this. Mm. Uh, your family can only afford that. So that's one half of the equation. But then on the other half of the equation, a sword is a tool to everybody else. A sword is potentially an equalizer. If you are a rich person, you're going to bleed just as much as a poor person. So I think the reason why it's so pervasive, because it means something to everyone from the lowest of the low who can just pick up a sharpened piece of steel to the highest of the high with the most embossed, engraved, jewel-encrusted monstrosity, in mm. my opinion, that is, is universally applicable to everyone, uh, and not even just class. You're thinking male and female as well. There is, you know, obviously, that's a whole topic, male and female, in 2023. But actually, there are differences within the bodies naturally. But if a woman stabs me, for example, if I'm fighting a woman, um, being taller, it makes no difference. Absolutely makes no difference. It could be a huge equalizer. There are famous notes of male on female dueling. And actually, the only thing that separates it is the skill with the sword. So it's in a weird, circular way. It's an incredible tool for equality as well, because it doesn't really matter who's on the handle. It's that's about the skill. So I think they are incredibly pervasive in society. I think it taps into something raw in a person, a sword does. It's not as removed as a firearm it's not as cold it's it's like that thing in star wars right mm. it's not as clumsy or as random as a blaster it's a more mm. civilized weapon from more civilized age <laughs> that's to phrase it as nerdly as possible that's so true for swords you pick one up and there's something about it where you just kind of go okay i get it yeah. i get it but yeah as a tool is it right from the rich to the poor male female swords don't care but they're just there but they're applicable for everyone from any sort of situation really yeah it's it's uh, i was i remember looking we think about the, the houses of parliament and how the reason the benches are so far apart is because that's how far someone can draw a sword yeah. It's two steps away, so you know people couldn't stab each other in the house. Yeah, they couldn't be trusted to play nice. <laughs> and I think there's still sword holders in you know with members when they go and put their coats and sort of guns. Yeah, there. there'll be people that are armed all over them. Say armed, I can imagine if any of them actually drew it, they wouldn't know what to yes, do with it. Exactly. Um, <laughs> they probably have a coronary drawer in the thing. But yeah, I mean, if we look at um, the coronation of King Charles, there was a sword present there. They're incredibly symbolic things. Uh, in just an item, you have simultaneously a symbol of power and a symbol of peace within the same item, which is actually, when you think about it, is incredibly rare. So they have huge symbolic meaning, really. Mm. And I think it, it is just one of those things that, because it is everywhere, especially for in a historically warlike nation uh, like England, for example, is it's just part of our psyche. And it's already there and it just taps into something that is preloaded in us. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you see it when you see new people come along and have their first session and you hand them sort of a, a trainee plastic separate, which, yeah. is, which is replica for a, a proper weapon. And just sometimes the smile on people's faces, they're just like, you've actually given me this thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've arrived, you know. And then, yeah. You know, you st but I think the other thing is when you do pick up a sword, you suddenly realize how you know nothing about how to use it. You know, and so that's where this, the training and the skill comes in because just having a weapon, you know, something like a sword isn't, is useless unless you actually know how to use it. And so that's yeah. some of the fascination I think with people learning when they get into the HEMA bug around wanting to understand how these weapons work and how they 
sort of move and the tactics you can use with them. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's an extension of your body. Uh, and I think people start to, and sort of the clientele that uh, HEMA and fencing to a lesser degree, but definitely HEMA attracts, there's this kind of this unlocking. The sword, when you give it to them, is almost a prop for them to be able to understand and move their bodies and work around in interesting ways. Um, so yeah, you do get that kind of enlightening moment when you give them the sword for the first time and they're like, oh my God, what is this? I have the power. Um, this definitely, most people get some degree of that He-Man moment where they want to hold it up and scream yeah. by the power of Grayskull, you know? <laughs> um, so there is something very visceral about mm. holding a sword, not necessarily visceral in a bad way. It's just a very gut-like thing. You're holding yeah. it and it's just like, this is this is something and then you swing it for the first time in a competitive fight or an aspiring situation and you absolutely get cracked by the opponent because you realize that you know nothing mm. uh, and i think there's almost that switching moment where they go oh, okay this is this is something this is a whole thing within itself mm. it's not a case of picking it up picking up a sharp piece of metal and screaming there can be only one and <laughs> doing the best you can is it, there's a whole thing to it and i do think that a sword for a lot of people is almost a prop for them to be able to improve upon themselves mm. Yeah, very much so. And it's it's interesting, isn't it, how um, sort of the the Eastern martial arts, which almost have a unbroken lineage, yeah, where there is the martial aspects, but often there's the spiritual aspect as well. You know, you read some of the sort of Bruce Lee or Wing Chun or karate, and there's where there is a martial element to it. There's also a whole other bit which is around the improving the self, improving the body. Yeah, you know, learning to fight so you don't, don't ever need to kind of thing. And yeah. it feels like there's that element maybe is not as, as present in Western martial arts. I'm thinking sort of, you know, boxing, kickboxing, um, and other in wrestling and, and, and HEMA. But it's something that everyone always talks about. You just have to watch any documentary. People talk about how boxing turned their life around, gave them yeah. focus and purpose. And it feels that HEMA is exactly, you know, any, any, I think any martial art that you use that expresses your body and connects your mind to your body, which is in a world where often you just spend a lot of your time in your own mind is something really really powerful and everyone will find their own way but it's you know everyone finds different things but it feels like for HEMA it's something that people have kind of jumped onto and kind of got yeah, on board with absolutely absolutely I'd agree with that wholeheartedly um it's almost unspoken as well that there is in eastern martial arts it's very uh overt that it's part of the spiritualism mm. uh with it as well whereas it's kind of slightly under the rug for us westerners really um we don't like to have our feels out on display too much typically mm. so we kind of keep it to ourselves uh but it's it's an interesting thing that you raise you mentioned a couple of martial arts there that um you would associate with thuggery and hurting people but there's one thing i've noticed in my career is that the more violent the sport is the more it encourages control and discipline if you think about the amount of people that go out and smack each other about and hurt each other how many of them are fences how many of them are reenactors how many of them are hema people how many of them are boxers i mean look at how violent cage fighting and mma is very rarely do you get headline of mma person absolutely annihilates someone after four pints mm. and then you go down the other end of the spectrum and possibly one of the on paper one of the most docile sports is kicking a ball around in a field. It's something you do with your kids, you know. Actually, the amount of things you hear about football hooliganism being a thing and football firms being a thing, uh, I think there's this perception that things can be kind of violent in what we do. But actually, with that, there is discipline and there is self-control. And I think we're almost like a self-editing bunch. We make sure that we are safe in what we're doing. Uh, and I think there's an interesting thing that you raised about martial aspects there. And I think the martial aspect really does tap into emotional maturity and control as well. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So I think I could talk about HEMA all day with you. So Absolutely, yeah. We'll, yeah. We'll, we'll pivot a little bit. Yeah, I mean, the listeners can't see, but yeah. I've just finished <laughs> off a coffee and now I'm onto the whiskey. So <laughs> buckle in. The right way to do it. Yeah, so, absolutely. So we're going to just pivot slightly because the what we're really fascinated with the OD&D podcast is hearing how groups form, how teams work, how things from different different areas can be applied to different areas. Kind mm -hmm. of so how can a you know school system be applied to a university, a university to a sports team? 
And so with with um, Hema, obviously, when you set this up, you set Smart Hema clubs up from scratch. You know, you decided yeah. you wanted to do it. And I'd just be really interested just to hear a bit more about that journey. So really, you kind of created the culture. You know, it could have been some some Hema clubs have one culture. We, we yeah. come across them, some have others. But you were quite clear on how you wanted your club to work and run and the values and everything else yeah and you've kind of almost dna'd that all the way through from you know from day one yeah. so do you want to just give us a bit of a talk around sort of yeah how you set the club up what your plans were and how's it going so far yeah so it's been a bit of a blessing and a curse um i'm sure i'll waffle around the point and eventually get there um but i started the hema club up really because i was kind of drunk watching sharp ones you mentioned Sharp earlier, and I was thinking, I was already fencing by that point, and I was thinking, oh, man, that is sword fighting. That looks cool. Mm. Uh, so that's that's kind of how I ended up gravitating towards Hema. And by that point, I was like, okay, cool, right. So I drunk, tick, sharp, tick. Right, I'm going to do sword fighting. Oh, there's a thing called Hema. Excellent, tick. Right, where can I do Hema? At this point, I was living in deepest, darkest Wiltshire, uh, and I was looking around, I was like, all right, where's the nearest Hema club? Oh, London brilliant okay cool that's not gonna work so i looked into it a little bit and i was lucky enough that my fencing coach uh a bloke called alan knowles yeah, uh yeah so he still works works with me uh at smart hema clubs um he, i still have lessons of him as well i don't think you're ever too good to have a lesson just as a side point uh but i was working with him and he introduced me to hema and he's like you know what why don't you start up a club? So I did just that. I took his advice on board and I thought, you know what, I've been teaching fencing for a long time. As a fencing instructor, I've had international quality students. I've had students that have made it onto Team GB, um, Fencing Epe. So I've had students that have been fighting for their country. And I thought, actually, yeah, I've got the chops as a coach. I've got the chops as a teacher. Let's give this HEMA stuff a crack. So I started up a HEMA club purely because of my own frustration of there not being one for mm. me to join. So I set one up so somebody wouldn't have that same disappointment, that same frustration in my area. Uh, so that's why I set it up, really. I was like, you know what? It's bad enough that I got to miss out on an easy route to HEMA. I'm more than happy to take the hard route and set it up so somebody else has the easy route. Uh, is this the way that sport needs to work? We need to pay it forwards all the time mm. keep going so then i got a little bit of information had a little bit of a clue half a clue and i thought right so i booked a local school hall which doubled up as like a little village church hall i bought my first set of kit put down two and a half grand and bought 10 sets of kits um at that point it's a huge expense mm. um bear in mind i was trying to get married that year as well so there were uh, expenses going out left right and center which didn't go down too well saying okay darling yes i just spent two and a half thousand pounds on hema kit i'm sorry wait what, what's hema um it's a bit, it was a conversation to have been had um but yeah so then got the kits and started teaching what i knew essentially which was basically epe but through the filter of a particular historical instructor and so i set the club up going along and i kind of thought yeah this is cool but i want to sink my teeth into it and that's when i really discovered what we call the masters uh, for those of you that don't know the masters are uh real historical figures historical fencing masters throughout the years uh throughout the centuries even and these guys have manuscripts treatises uh, and whole ways and methodology of fighting and as a coach as a modern coach it's my job to research these masters pick out the bits that i think work and then teach them to my students and kind of breathe new life into them in the 21st century uh, you have things all the way from the Walpurgis manuscript which is uh, more commonly referred to as i33 or index 33 all the way up to things uh, crikey george silver joseph swetnam things like that which are in what i do very modern um so kind of compiling my own index of lessons and teaching it from there and then i got to the midpoint and i thought actually i noticed something which is really interesting which was the clientele that was joining me which if i'm being brutally honest was slightly overweight white middle-aged dudes <laughs> incredibly nerdy <laughs> handsome charming debonair dudes but nonetheless absolutely yeah uh, there was definitely a clientele that was coming along and i thought as i was looking around i was teaching and obviously it goes about saying i would happily have anyone within my clubs and my organization 
Um, but I was realizing the people that were coming to my club were the waifs and the strays, the people that didn't fit in, the rejects and the oddballs throughout life. They're all people to a man who have been either bullied or not fit in or been ostracized and rejected. They're homeless, essentially, the social outcasts and the mm-hmm. social homeless who have never really fit in and never had that team, never had that club, that sport, that camaraderie. And I was realizing that I was bringing in and I was almost giving these people a social dry space to come along. And I realized that the club was becoming more than just two hours of a week for guys to come along and smack each other out of swords. I realized that it was becoming a place where these social outcasts were feeling comfortable. And then I realized that I had something more on my hands there. I almost had not a way of life. That sounds incredibly arrogant, but I felt like I had more of a responsibility than just to teach these guys how to sword fight for two hours of a week. And I realized that actually Hema was giving these people a little bit of purpose, a little bit of reason, or that little bit that they had missed out and feeling part of a team, part of a squad. Guys that have never been able to do football or had no enjoyment of it were actually excelling in a sport. And there was this incredible feeling of watching customers almost see their own value going, oh, I'm good. I'm a good sword fighter. Who would have guessed? I'm a sporty person. And giving someone who had previously given up on themselves as a sporty person, giving them that renaissance, as it were, is probably the better way to describe it. Giving them their own personal renaissance going, oh, no way. I can be sporty. That can be me. I can be active. I can be X, Y, Z. It was incredible. So I felt that I had a responsibility to lean into that as well. So that's always been my angle of setting up the club to give a safe space for the waifs and the strays and the social outcasts and using really the sport itself the hema is more of a enabler it's more of a stage for these people to come along and do their thing and experience what we're doing and it goes beyond obviously like i kind of joke about being slightly overweight middle-aged dudes that play warhammer um it's everyone You, you know we have men women other along all over the place. And we've always been a home for people because they feel comfortable. It's a non-traditional sport. So we have non-traditional people coming along and there's always just felt like a safe space. And I've always pushed for that idea of our club being that safe space. And the sport on the whole is an incredibly inclusive place as well. But I've always felt that the club should be something, the home for the homeless, essentially, and the social homeless is the idea that we've angled it out before uh, and it's working really well and i think if you were to come along on a club night you would see the people that would never never in a million years socialize outside um we've got experienced military personnel mixing with hardcore dnd players and just these two people that you would never imagine coming into contact with in life and actually finding this thing that unites them and seeing these polar opposite personalities actually mesh and become real good lifelong friends. So it quickly spiraled from coming to a couple of guys learning to fight in a sports hall to something more, uh, which is a really, really satisfying thing. Um, I think because of the, the feel of the club and the ethos of the club and the safety of the club, people put more into it mm. because they care more. They care about their club, they care about themselves, and they care about the sport. Uh, so I found that they were investing back in the sport a lot more and people were trying a lot more and the quality of the fighting was getting so high that I couldn't deal with it on my own. So at that point I had to bring additional coaches in. I've trained a couple of coaches myself to help me out. I brought Alan in. Um, he's taken one of my clubs as well. His son, Robert, um, don't tell him I said this, probably shouldn't record it, but I think he'll probably be, be one of the greatest HEMA coaches of all time, in my opinion, seeing what he's doing and what he's done already. Um, his ego is going to be beyond, <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be beyond the pale now, but it's on tape. Can't take it back. Yeah. Um, uh, because people cared about what we were doing. They cared about the club. They put so much more in and they're getting good. They're getting really good. And it's, again, we've kind of had this like second Pokemon evolution from baby club to caring club to high performance club. And at every step, we keep that previous feel to it. We just keep adding onto it and adding onto it, these different 
different modular aspects of the club and bolting on these other things. So it's going from strength to strength, but on a club night, it just still feels like that same safe place where anyone can come along and be themselves and smack a fool whilst doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And if I just, uh, thank you, Stuart. And if I just share my own story, it's, um, so when I joined the HEMA club, I I moved out from London and, you know, left all my friendship group behind um, because I moved out to um, settle and have kids and, you know, get housed and all that kind of stuff. And I'd moved around a number of different sports and clubs. I'd boxed, I'd kickboxed. I'd done lots and lots of different things. But the thing that I always was looking for was that kind of team spirit that kind of camaraderie that you you knew that someone was glad to see you arrived and sort of welcomed you with a smile and all that the other sports clubs were great but it's very much just a very different feel and i'd had kind of had my fill of um eastern martial arts with a very hierarchical sort of respect culture which means that it's sometimes okay for people of a just because they've got a different colored belt on them where it was okay for them to talk down to other people or treat other people not as as well as others and I remember going to my first, I remember I researched HEMA when I was at university and read some books and thought, wouldn't that be awesome one day to do it? And then when I did some research and saw the the club, I remember turning up um, to, to my first event and it was, I think it was like a November time. So by the time I got there, it was dark and I pulled into this school car park and there was a white van with three, <laughs> three or four people standing around it. One guy had a shaven head and a mustache, which I'd never come across before. And he had two of the biggest swords I'd ever seen in my life hanging over his shoulder. Another guy was just covered in swords and someone else was wearing a fencing kit. And as I turned up, I was like, am I in the right place? What are these people going to be like? But they all just welcomed me immediately. Like, oh, you know, welcome, you know, can't wait for you to get started. And from that day on, I was just absolutely hooked. And it's, we see people at at club nights, people who aren't even training, just come down just to say hello and just catch up and just, just be around people who are training. And I think it's, what I've come to realize is that with HEMA, you can pretty much go to, any club across the UK and maybe internationally as well and come across the same kind of people. So, you know, if you get on, there seems to be a certain type of person um, that does HEMA. And I think, Stu, you've, you've, yeah, absolutely. you've described them quite well. And it's uh, it's one of those um, things, everyone has to find their niche. And I think if anyone who's listening to this hasn't found their niche yet, then just keep looking. Don't settle, just keep looking um, because there is something out there. And I've talked to other podcast guests who whose niche was like uh, rhythmic gymnastics, which was fantastic. And when you, they describe that and they talk with such passion on it, you know, it's, it's fantastic to hear. And I could listen to anyone talk with passion at any topic so if it really means something to someone. Um, but yeah, HEMA is something that I kind of uh, just really enjoy and, and get people in. So Stu, just back to your club. So yeah. if you want to just, uh, if you could just tell us a bit around some of the other work you've done. So I think... Um, it's not just HEMA, it feels like it's gone into wider spheres in terms of mental health, in terms of veteran support and other bits and pieces. So was that yeah. like deliberate or was that just something you kind of fell into? Um, kind of halfway between the two, really. I've always cared. Now, I've always cared, despite what some of my customers would say, I've always cared about people and I've always cared about what I do. And I guess it kind of leans into that legacy of what are you leaving behind aspect. Uh, being a person of an alternative uh, personality, um, generally, I've never really done my typical sporty things or anything like that. So I've always been one of the one of the social rejects, one of the outcasts. Anyway, so I've always cared about what I've done, and it's always, from my point of view, at least, anyway, it's always been more than a club. Um, so there was always it, w- it was inevitable that something was going to happen. Um, in the wider sphere. Uh, but I didn't know if it was going to be my sport that did that or my club that did that or anything else. But as the club grew, as I had more capacity and more scope to do things, I thought, actually, this is a brilliant vector to support that desire to help people out. I've always been very proud of the armed forces. Um, I know that's not necessarily the most fashionable thing these days after what limited, skirmish- uh, what limited skirmishes have been on all over the globe. But these are people that are doing an incredibly hard job for, let's face it, terrible pay in awful circumstances for very, very, very little gratitude. 
Um, so regardless of the politics that sends them to where they go, the job they're doing and what they are doing, I've always been incredibly proud of. And growing up in Wiltshire, where you had RAF Lynham um, and RAF Fairford and places like that, and you had um, all sorts of military places all over the place, it, there was a very strong forces ethos mm. um, growing up. So there's always the respect for the people that are going out and doing this, regardless of what your politics are behind these just people doing a tough job. So as I got older and I learned of Help for Heroes, um, which for those five of you in the world that don't know what it is, um, it's a charity that helps out injured and wounded service personnel, not just physically, but mentally as well. Uh, and I've always felt that that was an incredibly noble charity and noble thing to do. Um, and I wanted to do something for that. And this was probably middling period of the HEMA club. I didn't really have any money I could give and any money that I could give. It just wouldn't be enough. I know everyone says every penny counts and it kind of does, but what I could do was, or what I could give was far less valuable than the time that I could give. So having a fair few forces people in my club as well, um, I decided actually I could maybe give a couple of hundred quid to this charity in the name of my club and maybe change someone else's day. Or my club could go along to Tedworth House, which is where Help for Heroes is based out of. They've got fantastic facilities there. You will never see better rehab facilities anywhere. It's incredible. Uh, it really itched that part of my brain that went back to the stroke <laughs> rehab uh, real early on in my career. Um, and I thought, actually, the club can just go over put on a display. We had a mini competition. We were interacting with service personnel and their families, showing them how to fight, teaching them how to do the basics, talking to them about the history, introducing them to the sword, to the kit. Uh, and we kind of just put on a bit of a show and a bit of a, a white collar boxing vibe to it. Just kind of got these um, service personnel who had literally been through hell just chilling out on a summer's day on these beautiful grounds with this incredible stately home watching these bunch of idiots smack each other about with the sword and not taking it too seriously. Um, and I thought, actually, I have that time. I have the manpower and I have the time. And I thought, why change one person's day with a few hundred quid when I could change 40, 50, 60 people's day with just a little bit of attention? And that was the way that I thought that we could give back to them. Uh, it felt so much more personal to say, look, I can clearly see what's happened and what you're going through. This is how we're going to say thank you. Yeah, and that was a brilliant day. I remember uh, on that day, sort of getting there and, and seeing you know the facilities and and talking to some of the personnel and just you know being in awe, and then realizing that you put me in the ring to start with with an active serving <laughs> member of the personnel who was you had not, the home crowd advantage. He was not going to take a step backwards no. um, and absolutely decimated me. And I think one of your pictures on your website is still him smacking me in the face yep. with a shield, which is yep. a constant reminder of, of that day for yeah, me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, that was an absolutely fantastic day. And it's one of those things that I never would have had the opportunity to go to that kind of place and meet those kinds of people without, yeah. without HEMA, which was, which was amazing. Yeah. So what was, um, so that was sort of help for heroes. Mm -hmm. That was, you know, a massive achievement and it was a fantastic success. And then you kind of built on that, didn't you? With the, um, fight for life. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Caught me with a mouthful of my drink. Apologies. Um, yes. So the next thing that we did was the Fight for Life, which um, I, I'll leave all names redacted, obviously. Um, but we had one of our members, one of our club members, who was really in a dark place mental health wise. And I think mental health is obviously the, um, the most pressing medical issue of our time, I genuinely believe. Um, but there is a huge, huge percentage of people that do HEMA that are mentally unwell. Um, and this member that I had, um, I cared about him. I really cared about him. Uh, he is the sort of guy that if not given the time, if not given the patience, it would be very easy to dislike. But that was just him struggling with his demons. That wasn't him that was dislikable. That was his demons that were dislikable. And I think that he had his entire life not having people take that moment to go, you know what, I am going to give you the time. Um, and he came to us and he was doing well. He was enjoying the hobby. He's a good dude. Um, and then he took a 
horrendous turn for the worse. Um, got to the point where his hobby was struggling, his job was struggling, he was living at home with his folks, his folks were struggling. Um, I know his folks very well because of all this. Uh, and two genuinely lovely people who you can tell that they would do anything for their son. Uh, anyway, he took a real, real bad turn at one point in his life, um, and he was on suicide watch. And it was when his father called me when I was out to Sunday dinner with my family one day that uh, he had had a suicide attempt, and it had only not succeeded um, because I try not to give too many details away because it's not really my story to tell. Um, it only it only didn't succeed because he hadn't prepared properly basically. Uh, and it was a, a cruel twist of fate um, that had made it so that it went wrong, really. Uh, and I say cruel because it, it hurt the guy. Um, so anyway, his, his dad had called me and said, you know, he had done this. And I thought to myself, that pause, that gap was what I thought. That's what I thought I could say to him. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. I didn't no, I, I mean, well, how do you tell a father who's just saved his son? Like, soz, mate. You know, I, I found myself absolutely dumbfounded. And I know this gets bandied about a lot, but genuinely, in the purest sense of the term, lost for words. I didn't know what to do. I felt utterly ill-equipped mm. to even make this bloke feel better about what happened to his son. Um, I sure as hell didn't know what to say to the guy that had tried it. Um, and it was another one of those moments I thought, I'm just so ill-equipped to deal with this. But what I do have is a relatively small army of people at my back who are willing to do something to help mm. in a way they can. And a little bit like rather than slinging a couple of hundred quid to a charity, actually invest our time and go and do something and make a tangible difference even if just for a day, I thought, I don't want to send empty platitudes to this family. Let's maybe show how much he means to us rather than ham fist our way through an explanation of how much he means to us. So what we did was in his name, whilst he was recovering, um, we decided to hold a 24 hour fight. Now, for those of you that don't know, a hemophyte is an incredibly taxing thing and the highest of high end fights lasts for a maximum of three minutes continuous so we decided to do a 24-hour one and as a endurance event it's right up there um, and i just put the call out to my club and i said you know what uh to help him through and to show him that we're at his back let's fight for 24 hours uh yeah so i had basically a whole army at my back and all of them cared about him mm. so we decided that this 24-hour fight would be a good way to show that we supported him. Um, and it was kind of symbolic that this guy was going through this little fight of his own, which was horrendous. I say little fight. It was his own personal fight, fighting mm -hmm. his demons. Um, but none of us really knew what to do or what to say. So we figured that actually this is kind of us showing that we can do something, put ourselves through something physically to show him that we care uh, and to fight for 24 hours, keep it going kind of in his honor uh, so that I don't know if he just felt that we got it to a degree. Yeah. Uh, I mean, how can you ever get anyone else's pain really in its entirety, but just the gesture of us saying, look, mate, you, one of us will do this to show you that, I don't know, we can just do something. What we can do is fight. So let's fight and let's show you by fighting. Um, and it, it, as an event, it was just going to be an in-club thing. If, if need be, it would have been me smacking a wall for 24 hours just to show him that I cared. But it snowballed. Clubs from all over the country heard about it, got involved. We ended up with about 50 members, uh, or 50 people, sorry. I had about 30 of my members and people from all over the place come in. Like people from the Midlands, people from down south, people from exterior of HEMA. Um, had a couple of kendo guys come over that heard mm. about it. Um, and we did it. We fought for 24 hours nonstop. Um, we fought a hard fight, uh, continuously. There was, there was no break. It was 24 hours of fighting of high degree fighting. Um, and 
obviously in anyone's life there are those milestone moments that you remember uh if you're married it's your wedding day if you have children it's the birth of your children um if you're career driven it's degree or the day you get that dream job and obviously you know wedding days and birth of children is those things for me but something that we'll always remember is at the end of the 24-hour fight and luckily enough the guy that inspired all this came along for the last hour because he was feeling up for it uh, and i had yeah the pleasure um of fighting with him in the final 10 seconds and we had all 50 of us in the ring scrapping in a whacking great big melee uh, and it was me and this guy fighting as the 10 second count went down in that moment when we got to one in through his inoffensive mask you can't really see much and you can see even less of your opponent's face or in this instance your partner's face uh, and i got to that one second mark and we got to zero when we managed to fight for full 24 hours in his honor and just saw this huge beaming grin from ear to ear he looked like the cheshire cat uh, and it was just that's one of those moments of just seeing this guy who had been through the ringer he had had the worst month or two of his entire life uh, and a month or two that would have finished someone else off you know uh, just I don't know seeing his face and seeing that grin and kind of knowing that I helped make that little island of tranquility in the storm was just was one of those moments I know it sounds incredibly narcissistic using someone else's pain for gratification maybe but I don't know it's just it was that sense of pride that my club is more than a sports club and that we care about each other to have done this for one of our own uh, to show him that we cared. Uh, and that's one of those moments of just seeing him grin, just that little moment of he understood in that little moment, probably lasted a tenth of a second, but one of those time freezes moments, it was, um, it was quite a thing. And it's something that I am very proud of. Mm-hmm. And it's something that we will always do. My club, Smart Humor Clubs, we will always do charitable things. I am currently planning something at the moment, but I don't know how far we're going to go with it. I'm assuming you guys are seeing a common trend here as I start with an idea and things kind of (laughs) spiral um, all of their own accord. (laughs) Um, So we will continue doing charitable things and we'll continue fighting the good fight, I guess, to phrase it really cornerly. Um, But that's what the the sport is it's what the hobby is it's more than i keep saying that i keep i sound like a broken record but it is more than just a sport when you come into hema it is i don't know it's it's a wellness thing it's a way of life it's, it takes over it's not just something you do once a week it's you do it you care about it and then it's almost positively insidious it creeps into your life in all the good ways and you meet people you make friends for doing it you do more you 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 do events and things it's it really gets in there and it just becomes like a it is like a way of life really yeah fantastic and it's so true i think that's probably true for for many many sport clubs but i think it's going back to that people who maybe don't belong in other sports Mm. clubs finding their their space so just to so just to move us on to the the yeah. next big thing because those there's some really weighty topics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's uh, yeah, absolutely fantastic. But there's you, you could you could be a very successful Hema Club by just doing those things. But mm-hmm. it feels that like you say the evolution has continued and now it's gone from strength to strength. So do you want to just give us a bit of an overview of sort of your because you you know you were a fledging club. It feels like you had a game plan. You and Alan had a game plan to mm-hmm. make this one of the best clubs in the country. Yeah, and it's starting to deliver the results you and probably dreamt would happen. Yeah. So, do you want to just talk us through how you, you know, wh- how you took stock of the current scene, how you maybe set up things that made things happen, and then yeah. where we are today? Absolutely. Um, it's good that this is audio because if this was video, you'd see my ego getting <laughs> like three sizes ego's larger. Good, ego is a good thing if it's done in the right way. Well, yes, yeah. You need to keep it in check, and uh, my members very commonly <laughs> keep me in check <laughs> um yeah so i've always had this mantra of we don't take ourselves seriously but we treat the t- we take the training seriously mm-hmm. uh the sport we take seriously but it's kind of hard to take yourself seriously when you're swinging a pretend sword into your mates so that's always been the cornerstone of it 
Um, and I guess up until now, we've kind of addressed the not taking ourselves too seriously. So looking at the taking the training seriously is you always want, or I've always wanted to be the best I can at stuff that I care about. Um, I can be incredibly lackadaisical about things that don't uh, encourage me, but when I care, I really care and I'm very keen to do as well as I can. And that's kind of mirrored in the club. So we thought having a lot of expenses that maybe competition would be a good metric. And that's all it ever was. It was only ever a metric to measure our success by. And that was, are we doing all right? Are we doing the right things by our customers? Let's send a couple out to competitions and see how they do. Because uh, you can get a lot of useful data through competition, even if mm. you don't win, even if you don't like it. Um, it can be a good tool. It can be a good tool at your dispense. Any competition in any sport that you're in or any hobby that you're in, sometimes doing it competitively, even maybe once or twice, can just give you data, can give you information to show how you're doing in a wider pool. Um, and that's what we did. And then somebody won. <laughs> Me and Alan had that moment of going, Ooh, yeah, I was there at that first one. We had, were you? Yeah, I didn't realize you were there. It was, it was one of the first ones because I, my dream is always. I remember going to a Wessex League, as they're called, and watching yeah. these high-level people steel swords going at it. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great to step, be good enough to step on the the piece, as they call it, or the ring. The, those kind of guys. Hmm. So I set myself a target: we're going to go next year, and we were woefully unprepared. <laughs> I think there was like four of us. <laughs> All of us completely lost, except one who in his first tournament won gold and then yeah. just absolutely obliterated yeah. everybody and took gold. And, uh, yeah, we just, yeah, it was just fantastic to be there for that one, watching his, I think I've got a photo some of his I face. Really brilliant. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, so he had no intention of winning. Um, and to be honest, as a club, we had no intention of winning. We were just like, no, let's mm. throw some proverbial skate at the wall and see what sticks. And it stuck. And that got me and Alan thinking, like, actually – what we're doing is the right thing. Um, so then at that point, when our guy had the success, had the medal, we were like, okay, well, let's start something called the Academy, which is hand-selected people who they don't have to be experienced. They don't have to be good fighters. They just needed that right mentality to want to push themselves and train themselves and go as good as they could. Um, as an example, we had this medal winner in the Academy and I brought someone in who you've referred to in a previous podcast, um, Tom. Um, I'll leave his last name out. Uh, so we had Tom in who come fresh off of his beginner's course, but he he, he just had the right mindset. Mm. He had the right mentality, he had the right mindset right from the off. And I said to him the week after his beginner's course, I was like, right, mate, I want you on the academy because I get it. You can, I see it in you. You are a diamond in the rough. And um three years later utterly proven right the yep. guy is an absolute beast he's a monster he's unstoppable um so yeah we had the academy set up and we, me and alan thought to ourselves right we can deep dive into this now we know that we can get results so let's invest time and effort and a little club money into these guys and say right what can we do how can we perform and what we have is what's called the wessex league which is a series of three and then two associated competitions so three main competitions in this league uh, every year. Uh, sometimes there's been four. Uh, and we thought, right, let's do what we've done. And a couple of years ago was our first run at it. And we took two medals, I think. Mm. One medal, two medals. The year afterwards, we took five. Last year, we took six. Um, and this year, we've taken six already and the season's not over. So performance-wise, we've just seen strength to strength and results to results. We get points for victories as well, points for entrances. Um, and Smart Hema Club's time of recording is currently winning the league as well. So um, individuals are doing really well, but the club as a whole is just growing and growing. Um, and we're really making a name for ourselves. We've burst onto the competition scene and we're absolutely smashing it. So I'm incredibly proud of the club. Uh, I'm immensely proud of my coaches, but the fighters and what they've done is just incredible. Uh, this guy, Tom, uh, I just, I don't want to blow too much smoke up him because he'll probably listen to this and uh, get too big for his boots. But what he has done in the short space of time that he's been doing it is just absolutely incredible. I'm so proud of what he's done. Uh, and all of the guys as well, everyone who's on the academy team, uh, they've just done so incredibly well. It's really good. And uh, it's the the old mantra of success breeds success. Around 
the academy and just to mention the performance guys as possibly doing everyone else who supports the club a disservice because as the club has grown it's gotten too big for me to manage but because people care about the club it's more than just a club as i keep saying it is more than just a club Mm. because people care about it people are stepping forwards and wanting to take on roles and responsibilities stuff that i cannot do myself i've got two young children i can't do the whole thing and also be a good dad so people have stepped up and said you know what i do this for a job would you like me to do this would you like me to help you out or i have an interest in this would you like me to take this on Uh, and it's become more than just my club um i've been delightfully knocked down from being narcissistic which is really nice uh it's not a one-man show anymore it's much more of a conglomeration of efforts between people uh and there are, again everyone's going to remain nameless but there are two people that and you know who you are i don't need to tell you um but without those two people the club would be a shadow of what it is i owe a huge debt to those people that i could never repay um there are two people that are just helped me out so much along the way and i think again it's just endemic time and time again you're seeing within the club and within the community within the sport people stepping up not because they feel they should to keep their club going but because they want to because they believe in the product because they know that they can do it and it i don't it just they feel like they want to contribute mm. and it's it's that desire to help rather than the obligation to help which i think is kind of unique in what we're doing um, so yeah, as it stands at time recording, the club has gone from strength to strength and we've got nationally and internationally ranked fighters to our name and people that are, it's, it's, a, it's a relatively medium to small pond, but people that are known all over the world for what they're doing at the moment. And um, so I think we are on the forefront of a cutting edge of an interesting sport. Um, not to make it too grandiose, but we're right there. We're right at the front. We're, we're riding that bow wave of something that's really exciting and interesting and growing at the moment. And it, it sounds so soundbitey, but I'm really privileged to be in the position to watch this thing play out in front of me, but not only be present, but influence it as well at the same time you you never get that chance to do that so it's for me personally it's incredibly exciting but for me professionally i'm so proud of what's been done and every single person that's helped it happen along the way yeah fantastic and so but so it's from a well just to summarize that it's kind of what from uh someone who has an idea mm-hmm. to then making it a reality and then finding like-minded people that also believed what you believed yep and then those people coming together and creating something that was maybe bigger than not, not I know your imagination's big, but you know, the, the different roles and, you know, different yeah. things that we've done. Yeah. It's absolutely. absolutely fantastic. So if people wanted to hear a bit more about, you know, you know what you do and sort of your thoughts on, on the world, what, how can they sort of get in touch or get involved with what you do? So if you're interested, I do have a YouTube show called the HEMA show. Uh, so have a little look on that, see if it's sort of thing you're interested in. If um, you like the things that I'm saying or the way that I'm saying it, it's kind of similar, a little bit more informal. Um, it's just my takes on the HEMAverse. I'm not one of these people that think I have an objective truth because I have a little authority in the matter. I, I like being challenged and I, I enjoy people disagreeing with me. Um, I, I like that conversation. So it's always just my opinion and my ideas and my thoughts and ruminations on it. But check out the HEMA show if it's something that you like the look of, you like the sound of. Um, but if you want to get into HEMA, if it sounds like the kind of place that you would feel comfortable, and you don't have to be experienced, you don't have to be sporty, you don't have to be fit, um, you don't have to be particularly well, uh, just go along. There's more to the sport than the sport. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't stress it enough. Go along to your local club, find a club, just go say hi. That's all. And if you can't do that, then send us an email and I'll do the heavy lifting on your part. So check our website out, Smart Hema Clubs. Uh, give us a Google and just say, hi, I heard you on the podcast. I'm interested in getting into Hema. I'm in XYZ area. Do you know of any clubs in the area? Chances are, if I don't know of a club, I know of someone within the sport that does. Um, so yeah, reach out because honestly, don't let lack of availability hamstring you and stop you because there's more to it than that and you're doing yourself a disservice by not seeing if you can get it done even if there's the slightest tickle on the back of your head this might be something that you would like it might be something you'd be interested in 
give it a go. You literally have nothing to lose. You have everything to gain. Yeah, and I can't think of a better way to really end the podcast. So yeah, definitely. I just want to say thank you so much, dude. That was absolutely fantastic. Um, oh, I'll, put, I'll put links and things in the, in the chat. But um, as always, thank you so much for your time. And uh, thank you for, for everyone listening. Hope you enjoyed this OD&D podcast. I look forward to seeing you in the next one. Cheers. Take care. Bye.